Okay, so we're going to start by looking at the indie problem. Okay, the indie problem. In the comedy series, for anyone who's seen it, uh, The Big Bang Theory, there is a, quite an amusing scene where Sheldon, who's one of the uh, key characters, wants to share his favorite film of all time with his girlfriend, Amy. So they sit down together to watch this masterpiece of filmmaking called Raiders of the Lost Ark. And when the film finishes, Sheldon is he's keen to hear Amy's thoughts. Now, assuming that Amy is going to naturally reach the same conclusion as him, that Raiders is without doubt one of the greatest films of all time, and that Harrison Ford, as Indiana Jones, is clearly one of the best lead characters of all time. Anyone agree? Yeah. There's some of you who remember that film. That's good. <laughs> Sheldon moves in with this question. Amy, what did you think of the film? Well, unfortunately, confident hope is quickly dashed by Amy's sharp but incisive analysis of the film. She agrees the film is good, despite the obvious flaw in the narrative. Well, Sheldon defensively responds, <laughs> what flaw? There is no flaw in this film. To which Amy responds, the lead character, Indiana Jones, has zero impact on the outcome of the story. If he wasn't present in the film, the outcome would remain the same. Now, if you are here and you're a huge Indiana Jones fan, apologies if that's a revelation for you, I'm sure that's actually not going to spoil the franchise, but go watch that film again and consider Amy's summary. To look at whether the... It's an interesting point of consideration to look at whether the main character in the narrative has any, re any real meaningful impact on the outcome of the story. And so that is something that I'd like us all to consider as we read the text and continue our series in the Gospel of Mark. And to help us do that, we're going to look at two, addressing two questions. First one is, what difference does Jesus make to the story? What difference does Jesus make to the story? And secondly, what difference does Jesus make to your story? So if you have your Bibles, can you turn to Mark chapter 9? And we're going to be reading from verses 2 through to 13. So that's Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through to 13. And we are going to be looking at the transfiguration of Jesus. I'm reading from the ESV version, so if your words are a little bit different, that's okay. So after, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them. 
And a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And he asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. So, Father, we thank you for your word, and I pray, Lord God, in this quite significant passage of Scripture, Lord, I pray that, Father, you would uh, give us a greater revelation of yourself as you did to your disciples there and then. And I pray that, Lord, you'll we'll just be another step of a deeper relationship with you, I pray this morning, that you'll bring us through... I pray that you would change us and transform us, Lord, so we don't leave this place the same. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, a tale of two mountains. So I wanted really to start by painting a picture for you. We're going to cast our minds back 1,400 years from this mountain moment that we just read about with Jesus to another significant mountain moment. We are looking back to a mountain called Sinai. And at the base of this mountain, alongside a whole nation of people, there's a man called Moses. And Moses was God's chosen servant to lead the people of Israel out from a place of slavery under the hand of Egyptians to a place of freedom under the hand of God. Here at Mount Sinai, God has requested the presence of Moses and him alone to journey high up the mountain where God is going to give him a set of standards, a collection of laws, laws that Moses is to share with the people of Israel to help them understand something of their identity as God's people, as God's nation. Now, because God was going to be present in this conversation with Moses, the mountain was actually off limits for the rest of the people of Israel. It was a no-go area, and the reason it was a no-go area no-go area, was because of the holiness of God. Even now, I think that's really something to consider about God and his holiness. It's like a fire that cannot be touched. You can appreciate it from a distance, but you can't get too close. This is the righteousness of God in comparison to the righteousness of people. And here in this moment, only Moses has been given this special permission to go and meet with God. So upon this mountain, God's presence rests upon it in the form of a thick cloud. And it's from this cloud that God speaks to Moses. God's word is shared and recorded upon tablets of stone. And Moses literally carries the word of God down the mountain to the people, handling that word with great care. However, upon the return, when he returns to the base of the mountain, the people of God have got themselves in a the right pickle and have made a mess of things. 
And Moses finds himself coming from a place of encountering God to having to lead through a series of challenges with a nation of people who are like sheep without a shepherd. How many people like that can feel they come to their Sunday and then they venture into their Monday and they just, they've almost gone, oh, I wish it was Sunday again. Fast forward 1,400 years, we come to another mountain, which I believe most scholars then agree is Mount Hermon. And we come to another person at the base of this mountain called Jesus. And Jesus is God's chosen servant to lead the, lead the people from a place of slavery under the hand of sin to a place of freedom under the hand of grace. And it's here that Jesus leaves the crowd behind and leads three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, high up on the mountain in order to pray. God's presence falls on the mountain in the form of a cloud. And God speaks from the crowd to all those gathered in that place. Feels a little bit familiar, doesn't it? And that familiar feel doesn't stop there. As Jesus with his disciples, they descend from the mountain. And upon meeting up with the other disciples and the rest of the crowd, they discover they've got themselves into a bit of a pickle. It's all got a bit chaotic. And that Jesus needs to lead through a series of challenges with once again the people being like sheep without a good shepherd. The point is this, from mountain to mountain, these are very intentional, Holy Spirit-led recreations of milestone moments in the Bible. And they're there to show something very important, to show the difference that Jesus makes to the story, and therefore the, the difference that Jesus makes to your story. It's interesting that both Moses and Elijah are present at the transfiguration of Jesus. These guys, they are major celebrities for Israel. And also, they represent great symbols of hope for God's people. For Moses, he represents God's faithfulness and commitment to Israel throughout history, throughout the past, to rescue, redeem, set them apart as a special people who belong to God. Whilst Elijah, he represents God's faithfulness and commitment to once again do the same in the future. To bring them out from their position of slavery to the Roman Empire and into freedom. To re-establish their prominence as a nation and reputation as the people of God. Other than God, Moses and Elijah, these guys are key people that Israel would look back to as prominent figures of hope. In the same way that we might look at our British history and recognize someone maybe like Winston Churchill as a prominent figure and symbol of hope. And I'm almost certain that if war times like that ever arose again, Lord may it not, the British people would be crying out for a Churchill-like figure to lead us through once again. For Israel, the understanding that freedom was coming was pretty concrete and wholeheartedly longed for. They knew that one day, According to the scriptures, someone like Moses or Elijah would come. In the transfiguration, these characters are brought together to deliver some headline news to the disciples who are present with them. God speaks from the cloud, and he does not speak of Moses, and he does not speak of Elijah, 
but he does speak of Jesus. And he says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Now in doing this, it's not to dismiss those who are standing with Jesus. God has actually already brought great honor to these men. But this moment and these hours are not about them. This moment and these hours are there to bring full attention to God's son. This is Jesus, the one and only figure of hope, over and above that of Moses and Elijah, the one who was promised. This was God's full endorsement of Jesus to Peter, James, and John, to the nation of Israel, and to us today. So what is it about Jesus, then, that makes a difference to this story? What is it about Jesus that makes a difference to your story? If you read Luke's account of this mountain moment, you will catch something of the dialogue between Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. So here, in chapter 9, verses 30 to 31, they say this, And behold, two men were talking with them, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, I've emphasized two things, to departure and accomplish. Because, of course, they could have meant that he was talking about his literal departure that was going to happen. The fact that Jesus had descended from heaven to earth, but he was also ascended or going to ascend from earth to heaven to be with his heavenly father after the resurrection. But we are looking at that word departure in connection to accomplishment. And the Greek word that is used here is exodus. For departure. The Greek word for departure is used is exodus. Moses and Elijah were speaking with Jesus about the exodus he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. I think that's pretty cool. When we think of exodus, we we then naturally relate it back to the story of Moses who who led the people of Israel from a position of slavery to a position of freedom. And with God's help, what Moses accomplishes, what Moses accomplishes is a physical liberation that takes the nation literally out of one country and on a journey to another. Here in the dialogue with Jesus, Moses and Elijah are now turning their attention to the type of exodus that Jesus was going to accomplish. Whereas Moses delivered a physical liberation, Jesus was going to deliver a spiritual liberation. A spiritual liberation that would move people from being slaves to a sinful nature, a nature that prevented access to God, into a spiritual freedom that sees every believer released from the grip of that sinful nature and given special access to come into the presence of God, not as aliens, not as foreigners, but as children. Even if we use the two mountaintop experiences, we can together highlight the difference that Jesus makes to the story. So on Mount Sinai, only Moses is permitted to come into the presence of God. The mountain is out of bounds to the rest of the people of Israel because of the righteousness of God and the unrighteousness of the people. In Mount, on Mount Hermon, Jesus invites and leads Peter, James, and John up the mountain into the presence of God. 
through Jesus, there is access to the mountain, access to the presence of God, the place where God speaks, and this access is connected to the invitation that Jesus makes and to the response of the disciples. On Mount Sinai, the presence of God caused the face of Moses to shine, so that so much so that upon return, the people were afraid and Moses had to veil his face. On Mount Hermon, not only did the face of Jesus shine, but all the clothing on his body was radiant, intensely white, and the disciples were terrified. From head to toe, Jesus shone. Now, if the face of Moses shone because of his conversation with God, everything of Jesus shone because of his oneness with God. And the pictorial language used by the gospel writers also connects to these other descriptions that we have that Israel carry in their history through the vision of Daniel and then later affirmed through the vision of John about the Son of Man. This man who's robed in intense white, whose face is like a blazing fire, or eyes like a blazing fire. As the writer to the Hebrews comments in chapter 1, talking about Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and it upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now, when descending the mountain to the people, Moses carries the word on tablets of stone. When Jesus descends the mountain to the people, he has no need to carry anything because he is the word embodied. All of which was written on the stone tablets find their place and their completion in Jesus. As John's gospel says of him, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. And finally, upon the mountain, Moses speaks to God on behalf of the people. Now, God knows. He tells Moses, he says, hey, the nation of Israel, they've started to seek comfort in what the world has to offer rather than what I am giving them. So Moses on the mountain in the presence of God, he's just like, you know, hands over his, (laughs) can't believe what's happening. God, please show mercy in this moment to Israel. Despite the painful mistakes that they are making, please show mercy. But it is a plea that Moses will have to make again. And it is a plea that every high priest, year upon year upon year upon year after that, will make on behalf of the people. Upon Mount Hermon, in the presence of God, in conversation with Moses and Elijah, Jesus talks through the strategy for a one-for-all-time loving act that he was going to accomplish in Jerusalem for the people. This exodus, this act of leading the people out of slavery into freedom was going to be accomplished through the sacrifice of his life on the cross and eternally sealed through the resurrection of his body so that mercy would not just be momentary, but for all time. And what what does that teach us? What does it help us to understand? Well, it teaches us that freedom is an invitation to the mountain. It's an invitation that Moses couldn't offer, but Jesus can. 
It begins to tell us the type of difference that Jesus can make to our story, the type of exodus he was going to accomplish in us or with us. That picture painted here in the scripture is of this mountain moment. It's not just a literal scene. It's not just a literal moment, but it has been added to the historical flow of God the Father pointing to Jesus the Son as the one to look to, to listen to, and to respond to above all other things. Why? Because God's heart is to lead you from a position of slavery into a position of freedom. God wants to show you that through his son, that true, that through his son, true freedom exists in the presence of God. And outside of that, by default then, there is no true freedom. Just opportunities to be enslaved to the things that are counter to God's heart for you. Now, the world might tell you what freedom looks like. It might look like this, it might look like that. Freedom might look like an environment where no boundaries exist, that there are no stop signs on the road that you're traveling. The world might tell you that freedom looks like owning the narrative of your life, that you are the author of your own story. You determine your path. This is your life, your decisions. You owe nothing to anyone. And finally, the world might tell you that freedom is the pursuit of happiness, And that you have the absolute freedom to determine what that happiness is or looks like. Now, God in his love does not stop you from exploring these types of worldly freedoms. He just wants to show you something infinitely better. He wants to show you truth and a freedom that simply does not exist outside of him. And so he simply offers you an invitation to the mountain, an invitation to his presence, to converse with him, to be with him, that God may impart his word to you so that you may know the truth and the truth will set you free. And the gateway to that freedom, to that truth, is only through Jesus. That was the price he paid. His life on the cross, this is the love that he showed. This is the plan of God for you and I to have that invitation to know and experience true freedom. Now, I think I'd like to touch upon another journey as well that we experience here in this moment, from baptism through to transfiguration. Because the mountaintop experience is not the only parallel scene which is being drawn upon this chapter with Jesus and his disciples. There are two clear times in the recorded life of Jesus where God speaks this clear declaration affirming Jesus as his son. The first is at the baptism of Jesus, and then the second is at the transfiguration of Jesus. And in these moments, both of these moments, God says, this is my beloved son. Now, interestingly, at the baptism of Jesus, God follows this by declaring his pleasure in his son. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Fast forward to the transfiguration, and God slightly tweaks this declaration so that the overwhelming emphasis is placed on the following words. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. There is a movement from baptism to transfiguration that delights to show the pleasure of God through to the endorsement of God. This is my beloved son. 
this is my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Listen to him. And the reason I share this with you is to show something of the difference that Jesus makes to the story, but also the difference that Jesus makes to your story. There are so many variables at work when these moments with Jesus occur. For example, when Jesus heals the blind man at Bethsaida, not only is he transforming an individual's life, but he's simultaneously teaching his disciples about what it is to see him for all that he is. Likewise, in other various moments, Jesus is fulfilling scripture, bringing about change, teaching his disciples, and doing all of these things at the same time, which, by the way, that's helped me in my new book title. If you are a man and you want to be a successful multitasker, you need to be more like Jesus. For nothing is impossible with God, yeah? (laughs) Out next week. Oh, dear. How we long for eternal glory. And multitasking might be actually a thing. There we go. So let's look, though, at another variable at work in these moments with Jesus, okay? So from baptism through to transfiguration, Jesus is modeling something to his disciples. Now, Jesus is actually, he's always at work in this way. And if you want, by the way, just on a side note, an encouragement of how you can bring good news into someone else's life, model something of Jesus to them. Whether it's the equivalent of washing someone's feet, I don't say don't, I mean, you might want to wash someone's feet. That might be a bit weird in this culture, but model something of Jesus' heart. Whether that's washing their feet or withdrawing to pray or willing to invest time in people and exploring God's word with people or simply displaying compassion, modeling something of Jesus is a powerful way of bringing good news into someone's life because it's what Jesus does. And I believe in this text, Jesus is modeling something, showing something of the significance of that journey from baptism all the way through to transfiguration to his disciples then and to us today. Jesus didn't need to be baptized, and yet he was obedient, which shows us something of the significance of baptism, not just in this moment for Jesus and his ministry, but for us as well. This this incredible moment where God makes this declaration over his son. This is my son. I'm so delighted in him. Which to me models the exact way that God delights and makes a declaration over every individual who responds in obedience to being baptized. This is my son. This is my daughter. I'm so delighted in you. And you know, Peter, James, and John get to be invited into a few scenarios in Scripture where it's just them and Jesus. One of those moments is where a little girl has died. And Jesus takes in Peter, James, and John into the room with them. And they witness all that Jesus does. It's so interesting as well, because if you read later in the book of Acts, Peter is invited into a very similar situation. And what does Peter do? He takes the example of Jesus and he reproduces it and has the privilege of seeing the woman healed. So there is this beautiful invitation from Jesus, not just to see him at work or just to be in his presence, but to learn from him and the things that he does, to take that which Jesus models intentionally for our benefit, that we may bring the example of Jesus into our everyday life circumstance. 
Now here, from baptism through to transfiguration, not only does it show something of the journey of Jesus and the journey probably that more than likely he's taken his disciples on, but I think it also points to something of the journey of the believer today. That from point A through to point B, when you accept the invitation of Jesus, God makes a declaration over you that you are his son and you are his daughter. And from baptism through to transfiguration, I guess that through whatever happens in between, that truth does not change. You are part of the family of God. However, baptism to transfiguration also conveys something of the journey for each and every believer. That at the moment that you give your life to Christ, God declares his great pleasure in you, his delight and joy that you have chosen him as much as he has chosen you. And that there is an expected trajectory of transformation that's going to occur as you take that journey with Jesus. As he leads you up the mountain, as you draw closer to him, as he imparts to you, as you chat with godly people about the exodus that Jesus brings, through all that time, transformation is happening. There is something about a journey that brings about change. If you're a, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, you'll be delighted to know the main characters, they actually play a major part in the outcome of the story. Hey. But that also, Frodo, the Frodo and Sam that you meet at the beginning of the story are very different to the Frodo and Sam that you meet at the end of the story. One day there's going to be a full presentation of the person that I have fully become in Christ. (laughs) Everyone's longing for that day. (laughs) The person that Christ has always seen me to be. That's what he does when he grabs hold of his disciples. He doesn't see Peter then. He sees Peter to who he's going to become. It's, and that, you know, that transformation, that speaks of something now, but it also speaks of the eternal future that we share as followers of Jesus. I am not the same person now as I was when I first met Jesus. And yet it won't be until eternity that I discover the fullness of who I am and can be in Christ. That's a future hope that I have in him. Yet for each and every one of us, you know, now there's glimpses of when that happens. And it's a beautiful thing when it does. So in that journey, I believe there will be moments when God slightly tweaks his declaration over you. That signals this wonderful transformation, this endorsement at work in you through Jesus that not only declares his delight in you, but also speaks to others as a voice that can be listened to. I've had those moments. You know, when you just know God is saying, hey, Paul, you need to listen to this guy. This is one of my sons. What he's sharing, you need to take that on board. Listen to him. Or, hey, Paul, this is one of my daughters. Look at the journey they've taken. I've taken her on. I delight in her, and you need to hear what she's got to say. With um, no offense intended towards the wonderful Indiana Jones... When you insert Jesus into the narrative, the narrative changes. From slavery to freedom, from baptism to transfiguration, Jesus makes all the difference to the story, and he makes the difference to your story.
He's the gateway to God's presence and the invitation to experience true freedom. And he is the one who's willing to lead you on that journey. He is the one that God points to above all others as the one to listen to, to give our attention to. You know, as an encouragement, <laughs> when Jesus leads the disciples up the mountain, they end up falling asleep. But as something of the fullness of Jesus is revealed to them in that moment, that surely woke them right up. On this journey with Jesus, be encouraged, brothers and sisters, as he leads us up the mountain, we won't get things right sometimes. We might even, at times, spiritually fall asleep. But you've accepted the invitation, and God in his mercy has great ways of waking us up to him. And he also shows us that at times, this journey with him from baptism through to transfiguration will be both beautiful and challenging. At times, we will suffer for belonging to him. But this is the hope that we have secured in him, that he will be faithful in his commitment to us as we aspire to be faithful in our commitment to him. So at this point, I just let me invite the worship band to come lead us. Should we stand together? So the guys, they're going to help lead us to a place, back to a place of, of worship through our expression of song. But as they do, I would just really like to extend that invitation, that invitation of Jesus to any one of you this morning who are feeling the call of Jesus upon your life to follow him. And all you need to do is say yes to him in your hearts and with your mouth. Declare your intention to follow him and begin that journey of knowing the presence of God and the freedom that Jesus has purchased for you because of his love for you. And I would say that as we worship, let's consider the difference Jesus makes to the story and the difference that Jesus has made to your story. So Lord God, we just want to bring our offering of worship to you, Father. Would you be at work in our lives, in our hearts? Would you deepen that I think probably that revelation that leads us to a place of thankfulness about the work that you've accomplished in us in bringing us to yourself. We're so thankful for the difference that you make to the story. And we're so thankful for the difference that you've made to our story. We honor you in Jesus' name. Amen.